Bookcraft is pleased to present the Sermon on the Mount Part 2 by Dr. Truman G. Madsen. This recording, the second of two on this subject, is part of the series, Jesus of Nazareth. We turn now to the second half of the Sermon on the Mount, again utilizing our three sources, Third Nephi, the book of Matthew, and also some parallels in Luke, and the Joseph Smith translation. The chapters 13 and 14 in Third Nephi could be called chapters of contrasts because Jesus frequently says this is one way or this is the traditional approach, but I say unto you something different. And so he begins with reference to alms or caring for the poor and his trouble that people do this, and apparently this happened in the old as in the new world, do this for reward. Do it for what appearance it will generate among men. And then pleads that the highest form of giving is giving in secret. And then promises, Thy Father who seeth in secret himself shall reward thee openly. Another version of it uses the image of the hand. Don't let your right hand know what the other hand does, or vice versa. Now, obviously, one knows what one gives, but he's saying that one who does so in secret, gives anonymously, does not seek for credit or for his name on a plaque, or for the honors of medallions and awards and rewards, such an one is doing as Christ himself would do. Remember how many times Jesus says to a person whom he has healed, See thou tell no man. And there are instances when the record says that immediately they rushed out and noised it abroad. And some have even wondered if that is precisely why Jesus said it that his very restriction only increased the enthusiasm of the benefactor to talk about it. But he was teaching two principles, apparently. One was the power and worth of anonymous service, and the other was that some things are so sacred and so intimate that they are to be talked about only under the influence of the Spirit, or not at all. By the same token, he speaks of prayer and describes those who love to pray, as he puts it, in the corners of the streets and in the synagogues to be seen of men. And he repeats, they have their reward, which is to say, they get what they seek. A person who is philanthropic in order to attract attention is buying publicity. He is not truly giving. So Jesus says, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet. When thou hast shut the door, pray to the Father who is in secret. And the Father who seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. But now the puzzling verse, but when ye pray, use not vain repetitions. The operative word here is vain. He is not condemning repetition per se. How often do we cry out with the same basic requests and needs? 
But vain repetition, as we know from studying the practices of the time, is the extension, the embellishing of prayer in two main ways. One is praying far more elaborately than is called for from the heart. And the other is adding adjectives or honorific titles to the names of deity. Both of these practices were in vogue as Jesus ministered among men. And he says critically, they think they shall be heard for their much speaking. Implication is, it isn't the much speaking that enables them to be heard. It is their openness of soul and the real intent of their prayers. So says he, be not therefore like them. Your father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask him. All this leads to the lines that everyone has memorized, the Lord's Prayer. On the Mount of Olives today is a church dedicated to the Lord's Prayer. Something like 70 different languages are represented with this prayer. And the question can be asked, why on the Mount of Olives, since we know that these instructions were given not on that mount or anywhere near Jerusalem, but on the Mount of Beatitudes. One reason is that Jesus himself retired into the Mount of Olives to pray on many occasions, went, says the record, quote, as he was wont, quote, or we would say accustomed. But also it was on top of the Mount of Olives that Jesus gave his final instructions to the twelve and Matthew 24 records his doctrines of last things, his predictions and prophecies about the future of Jerusalem and of those who were at Jerusalem. And so for that reason, the prayer is there, but there is more. The apocalyptic literature suggests that Jesus, with his closest ones, and even, and perhaps especially after his resurrection, went to the Mount of Olives, gave sacred instruction, and prayed with his disciples. What is striking about the third Nephi version of the Lord's Prayer is that there are two omissions. Surely Joseph Smith understood the traditional Lord's Prayer. Here he is translating plates where two phrases are left out. Are they significant? The prayer begins as in Matthew, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. But the next phrase we all know is, Thy kingdom come. The other phrase that isn't present is, Give us this day our daily bread. One possible explanation. In the midst of the Nephite multitude, and later those who were gathered through a feverish night to return for another day with the teaching of Christ. The people were a righteous remnant, all of whom received Christ with his ordinances. And in that sense, the kingdom had come. The kingdom was established, in fact, and was comparable for a period to the ancient city of Zion, to Enoch's city, 
There could not be, the record says, a happier people than was this people for four generations. So the prayer, thy kingdom come, had been already fulfilled. The remaining phrase, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, was still appropriate. As for the give us this day our daily bread phrase, that can be seen to mean, and usually is, as simply a request for sustenance. Some Syriac traditions say that it really was a prayer which in effect said, let us have today and tomorrow sufficient. But in the context of the kingdom idea and discipleship, another way to read it is, give us today a foretaste of the sacramental bread we will partake of with you when you come for the feast. In other words, not just bread, but bread which had been blessed and sanctified to the souls of all those who partook of it. In the case of the Nephites again, as appears in chapters that follow, Jesus introduced the sacrament twice, first to the multitude who were near the temple, and second to a much larger group who had gathered. He actually extended his power, not simply to multiply loaves and wine, but on the second occasion, he himself, without such beginning elements, from himself, as it were, gave them sacramental bread and wine. A reminder, I suggest, that ultimately our pasture is in him, that he is the ultimate power and blessing of sacramental awareness. So, at least the possibility that those omissions related to the actual condition of the people he was addressing. Then comes the troublesome phrase, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It is a strange prayer on the surface to ask the Lord not to lead one into temptation, as if otherwise he would. We have a statement, for example, in James, that God does not lead man into temptation. What then does it mean? In the original language, it comes closer to, and leave us not in temptation, or abandon us not in our worst moments of being tempted or pulled. The Old Testament is not as clear as the New on the forces of evil outside of mankind that yet work toward the end. But the New Testament makes it clear that it isn't just that men have inclinations to which various things appeal, but that they have tensions within, and that to ask the Lord to accompany one, even when he is a split self, is not only an appropriate prayer, but a prayer that should be constantly asked. And hence, in the eight different places in modern Revelation where we are told to pray always, the always obviously is an inward always, that we should act prayerfully even when we are not verbalizing exact words. But several of these eight have to do with 
pray always that ye not be led into temptation. Led by whom? By ourselves or by other forces. The Lord God is a deliverer, and hence the final phrase, deliver us from evil. He who would overcome must overcome through Christ. The final part of the prayer is familiar, and some have said was not part of the earliest manuscripts, but since the discovery of several extra-biblical books, both at Nag Hammadi in Egypt and near the Dead Sea, it is apparent that something like this phrase was a Jewish pattern for prayer. And in fact, all of the Lord's Prayer has Jewish antecedents. The phrase is, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory, and then amen. The forever is added in Matthew. Interestingly, the plea for forgiveness is repeated here, and the plea that we give to the Father our willingness to forgive from our very core of freedom is the condition on which we ourselves receive. If ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. We turn now to the verses pertaining to wealth and treasure. And there are again significant changes. Uh, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust corrupt. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust corrupt. And then the verse, familiar to all, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. We know from other passages that a rich man and a poor man are not by reason of their richness or poorness to be admired or to be, uh, on the other hand, condemned. In fact, it is the use and the consecration involved in one's possessions that Jesus is touching on. One cannot take his wealth with him. When a very rich man died recently and his friends came to the widow and asked, how much did he leave? She replied, oh, hadn't you heard? He left it all. We cannot take it with us, any of it, but Jesus' point is that it is to be used for righteous purposes. The New Testament does not say that money is the root of all evil. It says the love of money is the root of all evil. And the painful truth is that sometimes those who have the least may love it the most. The same book also reminds us, this book, in the book of Jacob, that after we have obtained a hope in Christ, I italicize the word after, after we have obtained a hope in Christ, we shall obtain riches if we seek them, and it goes on to say, and ye shall seek them, which I think is not just a prediction but an admonition, for the intent to do good, to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked, and so on. We are not to trust in riches. That is the core change in the Joseph Smith translation of the verses pertaining to riches. 
We are not to make idolatry of money, to make money our small g God. If we truly love God, then we consecrate our treasure, and so doing, we build the kingdom, we strengthen our faith, and we reflect our love. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. It is an acid test of our lives to ask the question, to what have you given the most time, to what have you given the most energy and the most thought? And then the next question, well, is that where your heart is? Most often, the answer is yes. Hence, our treasure must focus with God, and all else then is instrumental rather than an end in itself. No man, Jesus says in the same context, can serve two masters, and then it's redundant. He will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon. It's apparent from the earlier passages pertaining to blessedness that the pattern revolves around our renewal with energy and strength and life, and that some of us only have enough commitment and enough religion to recognize what we ought to do, but haven't yet learned how to get sufficient power to do it, to apply our own totality and combine it with his. And so we just have enough religion to make us miserable. It's only when we are totally committed to the one that we are able totally to resist the other. Now a shift, a significant shift, so that we are taught that this is not now what he's about to say addressed to the multitude but only applies to a specific group. These verses have often been roundly criticized by those who are anti-religious or anti-Christian as the most ethereal and dreamy and impractical of Jesus' counsels and that if they were taken really seriously the world would simply be unfunctional. Notice the following. When Jesus had spoken these words, he looked upon the twelve whom he had chosen and said unto them. That means not unto the others. Remember the words which I have spoken, for behold, ye are they whom I have chosen to minister unto this people, and now to them and to them only. Therefore, I say unto you, Take no thought for your life what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body what ye shall put on. Is not the life more than meat and the body than raiment? Then come the comparisons to the fowls of the air and to the lilies of the field and to the grass, all of which, he says, is taken care of by God, so surely God will take care of you. It's interesting that there are still fowls of the air uh, in Israel. Almost every place one goes where there are trees or growths, and uh, they don't seem to be laboring hard, and yet they do indeed spend a great deal of time feeding, and that's why it says, Your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? The verse follows. 
Why take ye thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. In fact, the lilies spoken of are not the white-stemmed, tall and orchid-like lilies. These are the poppies that grow in profusion, especially in the spring, just after the second rainy season, all over the fields, and then quickly are singed and burned. Yes, again, they toil not, neither do they spin, but they are beautiful. Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. The image seems to be that birds and flowers are able to depend totally on God even for nourishment or for raiment. That is an appropriate counsel to give to missionaries who are without purse or script. It is an inappropriate counsel to give to those who have been charged not only to take thought for the things of the morrow, not only to provide for their own, but to look ahead a year, two years, and to have institutionally, as well as in families, sufficient for the needs of the body in the way of food and clothing and shelter, and even emergency preparations for what may occur. How could we reconcile the systematic and effective welfare program of the restored church with these councils? Only if we understand that these councils apply to a certain group during a certain time and in certain labors. To them only, he said, take no thought what ye shall eat or drink or be clothed. Adding, your heavenly Father knoweth you have need of these things. That's background then for a general comment, famous, seek ye first the kingdom of God. The Joseph Smith translation, seek ye first to build up the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then it is implied, all these things, that is the basic necessities, shall be added unto you. Take no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient is the day unto the evil thereof, the New Testament version, sufficient unto the evil is the day thereof. What's the difference? Maybe none. What it seems to be saying is that we should take life a day at a time. It is arranged that life be composed of daylight and then darkness. It is arranged that none of us can remain conscious without sleep except for a very short period. Each day should be sufficiently planned and carried out and then there is change and rest and we begin anew. Another way to say it is do not borrow trouble ahead. Cross bridges when you reach them. Anticipate, yes, but do not take on the burden. So those who moved under the burden of missionary work were not to worry. They were to leave their troubles, their practical, secular, at-home troubles behind and in the hands of God, and their own lives then were worthy of hire, and they could focus and concentrate on the work of the ministry.